0: This is The Lit Fantastic, a show about writers and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. We are excited to begin this season on radio. To our podcast listeners, a hearty welcome back. And to all of you in Radioland, we'd like to welcome you to this show, which explores writers, their obsessions and fascinations that may or may not actually take place within the realms and the subjects that they actually engage in. Today we talk to John Tribble, the editor of Crab Orchard Review and the author of two collections of poetry, Natural State, and There is Many a Good Thing. His third book, God of the Kitchen, is forthcoming from Glasslier Press later this year. In this conversation we end up talking about the central obsession of this third book. His time spent as a teenager working for Kentucky Fried Chicken, the work of the kitchen and the experiences in these type of
1: blue-collar industries. Over the last few years, um, I've gotten really focused on certain obsessions in writing uh, based upon subject matter. And, um, of course, one of those has been I've been at work... um, Fairly seriously at work since about 2014, uh, 2013, 2014, on a series of poems that focuses on when I was a teenager and I worked for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, I had recognized over my many years of reading as an editor that I just didn't see a lot of work about work and certainly not about fast food work. It became interesting to me because I thought, well, this is such a formative period in your life, and um, so many people end up working in these environments. And yet, in the end, we kind of put them aside as as something from adolescence, childhood, that, that really... We don't think as as that formative, and uh, and I'm I've been telling stories um, to my wife um, Allison Joseph, who's also a poet and editor for years, and she kept saying, "You've got to write these down," <laughs> and so I finally started writing them down, and it's become a a complete collection of work that I'm hoping to finish within. Within this year, and and see what see what it amounts to, but um, but definitely that has been an obsession. So, but um, but the thing, when like I said the thing about the um, the fast food work poems is that I realized how, in some ways, how brutal the the work situation was, and yet, of course, I mean, when you're 16 17 years old you don't think about it um it's what you're doing and and you're kind of trusting that that everything's going to be okay and that you'll heal up and all of that but um but it was really tough physical work with a lot of opportunities for people to hurt themselves and uh in some pretty some pretty devastating ways and yet you just kind of went on making your well at the time I, that I worked um the minimum wage I think was at one point a dollar 90 an hour so uh, wow <laughs> uh, and I started out making sub minimum wage because when I first got the job I was 15 so I was being paid 165 an hour no matter how much you work, uh, it's not going to amount to much. So, so that was something else about it that uh, that I found that once I started working and started getting a paycheck, I started to try to work more and more and more to make it amount to something.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it is true. I mean, I I really can't think of anyone else that's been writing about this particular you know part of part of our culture part of our experience that uh you know it is true that so many so many people end up working in retail or fast food you know in their at the beginning of their years as a as a member of the workforce you know they start off in high school like you said or or maybe just out of just out of high school and yet those things deeply inform our relationship with authority our relationship with money and our relationship with who we work with and what we think of the, the world of commerce and the world of uh, the interaction between a customer and, and a person in a position, um, whether as a cashier or someone that's uh, providing a service.
1: Oh, that's yeah, that's definitely true, and, and just in so many ways you don't necessarily think of it as, as this because of course you're you're probably thinking ahead to either what you're going to do what you're planning to do as work going forward or college or some type of vocational training but in the end it really is your introduction to an adult world mm-hmm. um because no matter what you're going to be working with people who this is their life and um whether it's I mean just the management that you work with or but i worked with not any other cooks that was an interesting thing that all of the cooks were kind of young men about the age i was at the time maybe maybe one or two of them was were edging toward 20 but um but no one in their 20s. Um, but the managers, the assistant managers, and interestingly enough, some of the women working in the, in the stores that I worked in were very definitely providing for their families. It, it always struck me as, as strange after the fact to think that none of the cooks, that was the case. But, in terms of some of the women who worked the counters and and were the kind of the face of the store in many ways for people coming in, they might be in their thirties or forties, and again, they were definitely providing for providing one of the incomes or the only income for their family depending on the circumstances so when you're when you're 16 years old and you're in that situation you start to realize that this is real <laughs> that uh, that it's not just a part-time job in some ways uh, because some of the people around you this is their livelihood uh,
0: yeah it is kind of that wake-up call that this is not just you know pocket change that you're you're earning but you're in a workspace with other people for whom this is the difference between whether or not they can feed a family. This is the difference mm-hmm. between whether or not they can, you know, afford to, to have a roof over their head for a little bit longer. Um, why do you think there's such a reluctance to write about um, this particular chapter of our, our work experience or our youth?
1: I don't know. Um, I think that it's uh, it really has become a fascinating thing for me to see that um, – part of it is that I think there are subjects, certainly from the standpoint of of American poetry, as much as it has opened opened up to a variety of subject matter that has gotten more and more expansive, there are still things that that people look at and think that's not going to be a poetic subject that's not going to be something that's going to to give you entrance into the kind of intellectual material, meditative material, lyric material that that is going to make for poetry. That's been one of the biggest challenges of writing this work is finding ways. I it certainly would have been in many ways easier to have approached it as as either nonfiction or fiction because the language questions that come into play in terms of trying to find trying to find a way to write where figurative language where the cadence and the rhythms of of your phrasing is going to be something that feels like poetry to you that uh that w- those questions wouldn't have been as pointed as in fiction or non-fiction prose as they were in poetry and uh uh it was interesting i mean, when i read a couple of poems one of them's going to be one of the very first times i tried to write about this at all mm-hmm. and um and it's a poem that centers around just a simple activity we did every day, sometimes I mean, for an hour or two each day. And it was the act of breaking chicken, I mean, which was breaking it down to prepare it to cook. And to try to find a way to write a poem about that was very interesting because it it required me to really both think back at how it physically felt to do this, and then to think about uh, what was it like, uh, and what what did it remind me of, what was the kind of sense memory that I was left with. Um, other poems, I, when I've written them that are more narrative poems that explore either situations that came about during, during the work or... Um, people that i i came to know and and kind of their stories as well that finding within those and the possibilities of trying to see the store trying to see the work itself trying to see the imaginative possibilities and make make poems out of those um, as i did more and more of that 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 became a little easier after a while um but at first I and you know, I would I would sketch out things where I knew what I would be writing about but I really wouldn't know where a poem would take that and and that became the really interesting thing that to see where where approaching this as poetry would make it something different than approaching it as simply a an exploration of the events or the people or the place or the time. Yeah, I, I, I,
0: this, a lot of this conversation is resonating with me because uh, of the work I was doing on my second book that had to do with, I was writing about the, the computer programming field, you know, the world mm-hmm. of computers, modern technology, computer science, and programming. And um, Again, subject matter that often we don't think of as, as being sort of the field from which we would be writing poetry. But there was this this transition period where I had to figure out, you know, how to tackle it. So it didn't feel like it was a, a superficial treatment, mm-hmm. but instead really engaged whatever was the experience of being there, doing that type of work, and how it became a lens with which I saw the rest of the world.
1: No, the kind of subject matter that that would involve, um, I remember, and this would now be longer than I'd like to think, but um, but years ago, um, over 25 years ago, when I was teaching at uh, Indiana University as a graduate student, I actually team-taught a course in... Poetry, science, and technology, and so we were seeing work that that involved a subject matter that often poets don't visit and uh, and it was It was fascinating to see how um, and of course at that time uh, in, in many ways the the ways that technology has become so ubiquitous in our lives now—I mean, it wasn't quite that at that back in the early 1990s, late 1980s—and yet it was still, it was right there on the cusp of becoming that. Mm-hmm. And um, people were starting to try to find ways to write about um, issues of technology that uh, that were so new. Of course, I mean. Technology always kind of finds a way to refresh itself constantly, and uh, but but that was that was a really eye-opening course to both structure and then teach and see how the students took to the different things that we introduced to them and what they would write themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting too that. I guess when I think about poetry, about work, I, I go back to Philip Levine as being mm-hmm. sort of like, for me at least, that was the first contemporary poet I read, whose work really spoke to me. That I, I, I got it. You know, I had, you know, I, I think I had, I had grown up working a whole host of different types of jobs, and some of them um, quite labor intensive. You know, a summer spent out in the in the fields on a farm, pulling like Russian thistle from the ditches in like mm-hmm. hundred degree weather or or working in parking towers as a parking attendant um you know, and then later in life find myself you know w- when I was a programmer, working in cubicles and offices, far, far distant from the earth and from physical sweat, and yet still feeling. A different type of exhaustion.
1: Oh yes, yeah. I mean, There's, there's no doubt that um, that whether work is is physical or primarily work that you that its demands are mostly up, upon your mind. I mean, there's just different ways to be exhausted, um, but getting. Getting to that point I mean, is is a, a truth that all work can can bring you to, and uh, there was, of course, I mean, most of the Kentucky Fried Chicken work was physically exhausting.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so much of that, and of course, the conditions could be could be really pretty terrible. Um, uh, there was a point when I remember working in a, a kitchen that the health department had to shut down because they came in and measured the temperature in the kitchen at 140 degrees. <laughs> and um, so they closed this down until they fixed all the the ventilation and cooling in it because I mean, the air conditioning had gone off and... And we had, like, one or two little fans trying to keep us cool. So what we would do to, to try to combat that is we'd walk into the walk-in freezer and freeze our clothes on us. So, I mean, that way for the next 45 minutes or so, you would actually be cool. But uh, that's not a good solution. So, as the health department realized... <laughs>
0: So when you look over you know what's out there today in terms of contemporary poetry are are there poets that write about work that you do find um, this type of connection to that you feel are engaged in in writing about work in an interesting and compelling way?
1: Well, I mean one person that definitely has has taken on the kind of um, that kind of Modern office work that was really fascinating was uh Victoria Chang's the boss
0: oh yes yeah i
1: mean that um that from that standpoint I mean, she she did some really nice things and kind of turned a lot of that idea of power relationships and offices on its head so um someone else who I think someone else who I think I've looked at as for more the kind of work that um that I'm writing about in terms of the Kentucky fried chicken stuff is um David Dominguez. Mm-hmm. Um he's done some real um some real explorations of kind of the physical labor that can, that can drive you to exhaustion and, and the people who do that work. And, um, and I guess that also factored, has factored into the, the fast food poems for me is that I've always wanted to make sure that the poems I'm writing are poems that if I read them to the people I worked with, they'd make sense. Mm. um that they they would speak to I mean, not just my experience but their experiences as well and um so i've kept them um i've i've made sure that they they don't uh, disappear into the ether somehow and uh, that they stay very grounded in the the realities of the the work as i can remember it and um and particularly because of that, I guess I mean, there's a there is a lot of there's a lot of um, of injury that enters into the book. there's a lot that really focuses on the things you do remember clearly that were about either you or other people getting hurt and so that that's certainly a part of it. The other thing that I've done a, a bit of is um, a lot of research on. Colonel Sanders, and at times, kind of trying to to write some things that explore the way that there's a kind of myth making to American business, and I wanted that to enter in. It was so much a part of the of the kind of ethos of the company uh, about this, and it was true. I mean, this wasn't. Ronald McDonald. This was an actual man who at the time I worked for Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, was still alive. There was one time that I actually spent a day trying to keep a store running but as spotless as possible because we thought he was going to come visit. And so uh, we had been put into a particular store for the day, myself and then some other people that were drawn out of other uh, those stores in the Little Rock area franchises that I guess we were picked because we were supposed to be the best cooks and and employees that they had and we were all put into one little store that was a lot more like the old-fashioned kind of pickup window stores that they had started the business at and they thought he was in Little Rock for the day and there was talk that he if he had time he was going to visit the store and so we spent the day trying to be ready for him and that was that was kind of a, a weird thing the uh, the other thing that was a strange coincidence in terms of just um when I quit working for them within the next month or so, um, he died. And so I was still, I still, of course, I mean, even though I'd quit, I knew a lot of the people working there, and so I got to see fairly close at hand the company mourn his passing and um, and how they went about that and how how having this figure, this kind of icon who, wasn't just for advertising but was so much for advertising um, um, at the same time um, become kind of move from being a, a real person to a kind of myth and image to now just something that they have actors dress up as. I don't know what he would have thought of people imitating him. I don't think he would have liked it.
0: (laughs) Well, I I mean, listening to you talk about it, it is fascinating because um, it sounds awfully messianic, you know, in terms of like like waiting for him to come, keeping the space spotless, Mm -hmm. and yet everyone running as best as they can. And then the, the sort of this, this tremendous loss, you know, this mourning that happens with his passing and then trying to keep him alive again. It, I I'm I'm certain this is all coming out in the, the poems because it sounds like it's already there.
1: <laughs> oh yes, definitely. That uh, there are different ones that deal more that really focus on aspects of how he intersected with the work that, that we were doing. And, um, and it was fascinating because the very, first, um, the very first day I went to work, they had me sit down and watch a training video that began with him at the site of his first store and telling you all about, I mean, it wasn't really telling you about doing the work, it was just telling you about his story that had made this company, and yet by that point, I mean he was so far from having anything to do except showing up and occasionally opening stores, mm. um, but that didn't matter. It was still, it was still this idea that here was this man who, in his 60s, had decided to give. This idea of franchising uh, restaurants a shot, and so that was that was where they started you out. So it was very much this sort of so much the story of his life beca- was supposed to, I guess, inspire you in some way. But you were going, but okay, when are we going to get to how we cook chicken?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to The Lit Fantastic on KBOO Community Radio. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or thelitfantastic.com. Now back to our conversation with poet and editor John Tribble. i 'm now really, really excited about reading this book. I mean I was interested before, but now i 'm really really interested the uh, The other thing that kind of I wonder about too is um, it, what are, what have been some of the biggest surprises for you, whether in terms of the research that you 've done or in terms of the writing and you know contemplating of, of this material as you revisit it you know later on in life
1: well there 'd be kind of two different things there was the I mean, as I researched him, uh, his life, I mean, I was really surprised by the ways in which, just coincidentally, my life and my family background really intersected with him. Because, I mean, though of course, I mean, everyone thinks of him in terms of Kentucky, and truly, I mean, he started the first place where he was selling uh, this chicken as a gas station in Corbin, Kentucky. And I, I finally went to the spot where they have reconstructed part of, part of something that's supposed to look like his original store that he was selling the chicken in, but they've also got attached an actual functioning store right next to it. So it's a very odd move from the you walk into the present and move to the past, and, uh, and so that's, that's an odd thing. But, no, I found out, I mean, one, he practiced law in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I'm from. I mean, I, he set up his first family in Tuscumbia, Alabama, where my uh, grandmother lived. I mean, they're just all these weird little intersections of uh, his story and the pl- and places I know very well. He was actually from Southern Indiana, where I spent five years in graduate school. So, so it was just finding out those things in his life really struck me as okay. Um, this is particularly, I think, when I found out that he had spent time doing. He wasn't an actual lawyer. He he did what they used to call he read the law so that he could show up in Justice of the Peace Courts and argue for clients. But that ended very badly for him because he actually took a cane and beat one of his clients <laughs> in court. <laughs> one of his own clients So because he thought the guy was ripping him off. So he was barred from from the Justice of the Peace Courts in Arkansas after that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, so there was that aspect to it. What I knew, and it may have been why I had avoided writing some of the, the things about it as well, I knew that there was, at the heart of the work, there was a lot of physical pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I knew that at least for some of the poems to be honest and true I had to get back to what that really meant. And um there are, there are poems in, in the book that were pretty excruciating to write as I because I had to remember um what that kind of pain felt like. And that was that was not a welcome thing but i knew that it was something that i had to do if i was going to to really write this collection i couldn't i couldn't avoid that ultimately and so when i started out writing like i said the the very first poem and some of the other poems were were sense memories about the place or about the work or about a certain activity but. I did know that that kind of lurking behind that was some pretty, some pretty painful stuff that just, I'd either have to, I'd have to see where, where the poems would take me and uh, be willing to really try to remember those things as fully as I could.
0: (laughs) Did you find also in the process that you remembered or discovered things that were unexpectedly beautiful or moving or...
2: or
1: Occasionally, occasionally, and certainly at least, if not beautiful, kind of strangely fascinating. Mm. um, That in terms of trying to find some figurative language at times to speak to a very... What you start off with thinking of as a very kind of hands on but um but ordinary type of activity for you because you're doing it um you start to you start to realize that that there are some things that are oddly beautiful oddly strange connections you had never thought about making. Um, that as you write and enter into those possibilities and memories again you find that uh that those can be those can be uh a really rich thing to discover in the poems and uh, again in the i was just remembering one of the one of the things from my research about the about Colonel Sanders i actually discovered that he made a um uh, Bossa Nova album. <laughs> so it was again, I mean the the number of ways that at his peak as a as a celebrity I guess is the best way to think of it. Um but the number of ways they tried to uh monetize him uh is fascinating. I mean, this album which was a basically a knockoff of um of the Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass and probably used some of the same um, studio musicians. um, But it was was clearly a rip-off of their success and it was called um, Colonel Sanders Tijuana Picnic. (laughs) And uh, you can't make this stuff up. There are so many things that I that I haven't written about that came ac- that I came across in the research that I did because they predated my experiences with the work that, in terms of time, but in the late 60s, before I mean, when I would have been about five or six or seven, I and mean, the ads they put out on television for. Kentucky Fried Chicken, were just insane. There's actually one that that they showed on American television that had a woman dressed up in a flesh-colored bodysuit pretending to be Lady Godiva riding around the countryside giving out fried chicken. I mean, I don't know what I would do with that in a poem. Um, and since it since I do not remember seeing it. And I think if I'd seen it, I'd remember it. Um, So, but, uh, yeah, they just, they really, at times, did some crazy stuff. So, and at one point, of course, she rides up to Colonel Sanders and hands him a piece of chicken. (laughs) So, So, yeah.
0: Wow. I I would not have known that and you're right. You cannot make up these things. They're no, just too No, incredible. I and, yeah. and you
1: uh, you definitely don't have to. The the Tijuana picnic though does enter in, into one of my poems so because of into I think the poem that's about waiting on Colonel Sanders waiting mm-hmm. that day because since the type of store that he was pushing when when they were the other reason for the Tijuana Picnic album, at least for the album notes was they had opened their first store in mexico mm. and um so the album notes on the back of it where he talks about each song and and pushes fried chicken and talks about moving into Mexico as a with his businesses that type of store was the type we were working that day. So it gave me an opening to to bring that up, and it was just too good to pass up.
0: That definitely sounds too good to pass up. So before we, we, we close up, um, I was wondering if you would mind reading a couple poems, one or two poems for us.
1: Sure, sure. And I thought that uh, what might be interesting, there are two poems that uh, over the years I've published in the magazine... Um, southern indiana review um that uh, and one was the very first of the the fried chicken poems i published uh back in 2006 and the other is one from last year so i thought i'd read both of those um because one is more the the lyric kind of sense memory and the other is more a, a story um type of uh, bit of a narrative. So um, the first one is titled Breaking Bird. You break the thighs, that's all. A quick snap like you imagine any bone forced from the joint it's bedded in might give to pull and twist and pop. The raw meat under your fingers cool to the touch like water in the shade of a cliff face that never feels the sun, like moss on the underside of a deadfall off a quiet path. The skin thick like the tongue of a work boot, nothing like anything once alive should feel, sliding and sucking in the tightening grip of your thumb. But that is last. First, there is the tail, nub of useless stump that feathered the fat and bony end of these inept flyers and you crank it once, twice, mostly never three times till it gives way in your pinch and you toss it off into the growing pile in the trash where these clips of skin and bone collect each looking like the first joint of a fleshy thumb that's lost its nail, naked now, unable to grasp even the smallest thing. So that was, as I said, that was a poem from 2006, so almost a decade, or now a decade ago, this was a poem that uh, was published just last year and uh, tells a bit more of a story. It's titled Wishbone. A handshake with pain under the palms' fleshy bunker, sandbagging muscle and nerve below the soft knot, swollen with heat in a hot summer of breading and frying, frying and breading. And so much soapy water in sinks and buckets that the spongy wrinkled skin, like the dead bird's skin, feels right feeling wrong. And so it's only when your hand begins to look like a blued filet, scars marking sears from grease and flame, And your fingers have fattened like plumping franks on the end of a campfire skewer. You begin rubbing the delta of the thumb and index finger, the nexus of the pain you have ignored for a week, week and a half at most, and you feel a thin bone where there is no bone, no bone of yours at least a needle stitching its way inside the tight knitting of your muscle and blood, and you keep massaging its line of nerve fire until you find the tender point of this inch-long splinter and against the tongue-biting, eye-searing scream of each measure of renewed press and push A point finally breaks back out of what you imagined was your closed skin. An old wound open. You thought nothing more than a scratch. When a chicken bone from the keel, the center breast cut from beneath the bird's tender rib cage, knifed so quietly inside... Curving within the pocket Hiding under your thumb Until infection Protested this invasion Burning out What never belonged in And you slowly Pull on the end Hoping it will all hold together And through the pus And blood it does And when you wash it clean Your hand Cleansed over and over In steamy lather and soaking in a bowl full of alcohol until all the heat is gone. You realize you hold in your other hand the short end of a wishbone, a failure like so many you don't see yet ahead. Now only a curiosity and caution that won't slow you down soon enough.
0: Well, thank you. Um, those were incredible.
1: It's, it is a manuscript. I, d- I really have no idea whether people will respond well to it or not. Um, uh, I can certainly understand, again, that feeling that uh, that some of this is, is pretty rough material and, uh, um, and not necessarily what people think first of when they're thinking of... Uh, of reading poetry, so, so I'm 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 certainly understanding of the possibilities that it might it might catch on very well. It might take a while, so, so I'm there's definitely that feeling of of hopeful <laughs> of hopeful optimism that that the book will stand stand up. Um, I tentatively have a title for it. Uh, That's based on an interesting poem in the book called God of the Kitchen, where I imagine um, kind of a fever dream sort of thing where a actual kind of God rises out of the friars, remaking the chicken like it's uh, a kind of Aztec thing and uh, sacrifices all of us. (laughs) So yeah it's it it has certainly some flights of uh imagination within it um but also in some some of the history of the company some of the history I had in terms of working in it so so I'm hoping it'll it'll all fall together in a good way
0: It sounds like the individual poems are finding um finding publication finding They home, are they poems.
1: are I've I've already even as as new as a lot of the work is, um because well, I said I, I started the project in in a serious way as far as thinking of it as that probably in the spring of twenty fourteen and so it hasn't been that long um to have written uh, I think now almost uh thirty five um uh, poems uh, along this line and um some of them quite uh quite long so some of the narratives are definitely longer poems. Um so it uh probably two thirds of that work has already been been published, uh either published or accepted. So I'm I'm happy about that.
0: Yeah, con- congratulations. And it, thank you. It, thank yeah, you. I I think like that's usually a good sign. If if um if a substantial portion of the manuscript is is those poems are finding homes. Um there it's something's so. resonating can... with with the readers out there.
1: Mm-hmm. I think so and and one of the other things I did with this book is that it has some pretty interesting inventive things in terms of form as well because I and mean, uh, that was one of the things that, for me, became a real driving force of of trying to to find some poetic structure in terms of uh, some of the material I was writing about. Um, my favorite is a poem that uh, that uses is sort of like an acrostic in that it, if you read the first word down. Uh, down the lines you actually um have the words of a kentucky fried chicken jingle (laughs) so that was fun to do and and a challenge um because they started at the end of the jingle repeating the word nice and nice is not an easy word to repeat (laughs)
0: yeah nice is not 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 nice for for poets
1: when you're writing so um so I only used uh, the refrain once because the refrain I think had "nice" in it three times, and I th- said, <laughs> "said I can't keep doing this."
0: Well, it's so. it's been an absolute delight um, to to talk to you today and to hear more about um, your obsessions and specifically about this how they feed into this particular book. Um,
1: well, I have enjoyed it as well. It's been really great talking with you and uh, and getting a chance to talk about these spawns.
0: Well thank you once more um, and uh, hope to hear more about uh, your upcoming projects in the near future.
1: Well thank you and uh, again it's been a delight having this conversation.
0: That was poet and editor John Tribble, author of Natural State and There Is Many a Good Thing, as well as the forthcoming God of the Kitchen. We'll be back again next month at the same time. Until then, you can check out previous episodes on iTunes or thelitfantastic.com. And if you haven't figured it out by now, you're listening to the music from Tijuana Picnic. Until next month, this has been your host, Neil Aiken.
2: Hey,
3: Lip Fantastic listeners, producer and editor Jenna here, bringing you an Easter egg for sitting through that last song in the end credits there. In case you're curious, that's the opening track from Tijuana Picnic titled Taste of Honey. Hmm. So while I was editing this episode, I couldn't help but listen to the entire Tijuana Picnic album, which is surprisingly good and does sound exactly like Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass. Of course, this sent me down the KFC rabbit hole where I found that Lady Godiva commercial.
4: Kentucky Fried Chicken tastes great and it's convenient. Lady Godiva didn't stop to fix dinner, why should you? You make history, let Colonel Sanders make dinner.
3: And in case that wasn't enough for you, they also did a Cleopatra.
4: Who's got time to make dinner when you're busy making history? Kentucky Fried Chicken tastes great and it's convenient. Cleopatra didn't stop to fix dinner? Why should you? You make history. Let Colonel Sanders make dinner.
3: And a Paul Revere commercial, too. The
1: chickens are coming. The chickens are coming. The chickens are coming.
4: Who's got time to make dinner when you're busy making history? Colonel Sanders' Kentucky Fried Chicken tastes great, and it's so convenient you can get it right in your neighborhood. They didn't stop to fix dinner. Why should you? You make history. We'll make dinner. Colonel Sanders already made history by fixing Sunday dinner seven days a week, and it's finger-lickin' good.
3: Ah, is there anything more American than KFC? Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Lit Fantastic. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at The Lit Fantastic. You can also find out more information about all of our episodes on thelipfantastic.com.